2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I, am all, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Lord, we ask that you would help us, please, see how your word is our final authority in all matters of life today. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us. We ask that your spirit would open our, our eyes, our, our hearts, that he would Help us to apply these truths to our specific situation today. Lord, that we wouldn't switch off because we have some church history that's being presented. But rather, Lord, we'll see how pertinent and applicable this is to our own day and age. Lord, that we would run the race that you have called us to. Lord, that we would be people who have fought the good fight. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
So some of you have uh, read the article that I sent out earlier uh, this month. And if you haven't yet, it is on our website. Please do read that, an introduction to the, the five solars. In that article, I mentioned that this month in October, we normally remember Reformation Day, which is on the 31st of October this year. It is the 506th anniversary. In um, 1517, Martin Luther, he sparked the Reformation by posting his 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this thesis was a list of statements that, that expressed Martin Luther's concerns about certain church practices, mostly about the sale of indulgences, which we will learn more about throughout this month. But mostly his thesis was based on deeper concerns about church doctrine, the problem that the church was having at the time and the way they were moving away from the Scriptures. And at first, Martin Luther's thesis was there to protest some of the Catholic practices and to reform the Roman Catholic Church in the beginning. But please do stay with me. This is not going to be a complete history lesson, okay? I promise you. Okay, this is, this is not a school academic lesson today. But it is important for us to look back a little at church history to give us some understanding and context as to why these five solas are so important and why they are relevant for, for us today. It's not wrong to look back in history and to, to learn from history. Remember, the people of Israel forgot the past and the roots of their faith, which led to disastrous consequences. The medieval church, exactly the same, forgot their past and the roots of their, their faith with disastrous consequences. And sadly, there are many churches today that are following the same pattern, forgetting the past, forgetting the their roots of their faith, which leads many people to spiritual bankruptcy and to ruin. These church reformers in the time of Martin Luther were willing to die for their, their doctrinal ideas. And many did. Many gave up their lives to stand on truth. And the question we need to ask is why? Why were these doctrinal ideas worth dying for? And are they still that important for us today? I want to propose to you today that yes, they certainly are. Solar scripture, the solar that we're going to look at this morning. The first of these five sayings that we will look at this afternoon. Sorry, Vince. <laughs> the first of these Solas was developed during the Reformation was sola scripture, scripture alone. And what this means is that the Bible is the final authority and ultimate authority for life, for practice of all Christians. I'll put that out later this week as a definition. Maybe I can just repeat it. Sola scripture means that the Bible alone is the final and ultimate authority for the faith and practice of all Christians. And as Protestants, we protest in favor of sola scriptura. We protest in favor of this. In many ways, sola scriptura is the foundational sola. And if we are persuaded 
that the Scriptures alone are our sole and final authority for what we believe about God and man, then we can have complete confidence in all that they instruct us in this regard. And it should be pointed out that that Scripture is not our only authority. There are various authorities under whom God has placed us, our parents, our husbands, our elders, uh, the human government that God gives us, our employers, etc. But our final authority, we're talking about our final authority here, is the Word of God. And the Word of God reveals to us God's will on all matters of life. Therefore, if, if human authority contradicts what God has revealed in His Word, who do we submit to? We submit to our final authority, which is the Word of God. This is a test of our professed discipleship. As a Christian, this is what we should be professing to do. And last week, we finished our preaching series, if you remember, in, um, on the subject of missions, our Missions Emphasis Month. And we were reminded that the Great Commission is all about making disciples of Jesus. Remember, in Matthew 28, we we are to go, we are to baptize, and we are to teach. We are to teach. What are we to teach? Well, we are to teach our disciples to observe the Scriptures, to observe all of the Scriptures. We are to teach that all of Scripture is our final and ultimate authority. Not just some, not just verses that, that we like, that, that we are pleased with, but all of Scripture is our final and ultimate authority for the faith and the practice of all Christians. And this idea of Scripture as our final authority was not invented by the Reformers in the 16th century. And I want to show you that from Scripture today. And that's why this is not a history lesson. I want to show you from the Scriptures today. The issue of Scripture as our final and all-sufficient authority was taught both explicitly and implicitly by the apostles. The New Testament epistles were written for the purpose of revealing what God says about various issues, and the church was expected to submit to such scriptural commands. And the scriptures teach us that we are to accept scripture as our final authority when it comes to such life issues as sexuality, as marriage, as idolatry and taboos with reference to eating and, and drinking and circumcision and employer and employee relationships, dealing with interpersonal conflict, dealing with, with anger, dealing with bitterness and, and unforgiveness, responsibility to our, to our human government, responsibility to our, to our children and to our, our parents. Scripture tells us about these things. And if you have read any of the New Testament letters, you would have noticed that many of these issues are often readdressed. They are often readdressed in different passages. And I think this, this shows us, this indicates that the early church, remember the church that Paul was writing to in his letters, struggled with submitting to Scripture alone. And therefore the apostles, they needed to repeat themselves. And that's why it's so important for us to hear this teaching on Sola Scripture today. And by the way, when this happened, the mission of the church was 
obstructed. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas needed to to take time to travel to Jerusalem to meet with the, the twelve to discuss the issue of circumcision. We looked at that in our study of the book of Acts. And if these professing Christians simply submitted to Scripture alone and not their traditions, this time would have been better used for, for further missionary activity. But they struggled with submitting to Scripture alone. And the struggle still exists today. But such struggles did not end with the New Testament church. As I mentioned, in the Middle Ages, the church largely lost her conviction of sola scripture, which led, the result led that she, she lost her way. And that is why we refer to the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. The church became confused. The church became misguided as, as tradition and man-made opinions held sway over what Scripture alone revealed with, with reference to what she should believe and how she should behave. And things went south in a very short time. And once again, the church's mission suffered. But the reformers were used by God to lead a large portion of the church back to Scripture alone. And with this reformation came some major transformations. And still today, we continue to reap the benefits of such transformations, of such a conviction to this day. You know, in recent times, the church is facing this battle of sola scripture. You know, church denominations are are splitting over LGBTQ issues and, and forsaking what Scripture has to say and denying Scripture as our final authority for all matters of life, including sexuality, including marriage, and instead replacing that with man's opinion and private interpretations of the Scriptures. And as a result, we have a church in need, in ruin. What shall we do? Well, we need to go back again to the Protestant Reformation. We need to have the courage that the Reformers did, the courage to protest, the courage to be Protestant. We must protest against such denials of this fundamental conviction. The conviction that God has spoken and and that we are to listen and that we are to obey what He has communicated. We must perseveringly embrace Scripture alone. And I want to help us in our confidence that we have all that we need relating to life and godliness. And this conviction is vital for our Christ-given mission. If we are going to be effective in the mission that the Lord has given to us, If we are going to be effective in making disciples of our Lord and Savior, we need to have this conviction. And the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in this passage that that we are going to study now. And let's take the reminder of our time to note some important observations from this text. So look at with me, if you would, in verse 1. We see in verse 1 to verse 9 in chapter 3, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, 
and he tells him of difficult times ahead. And Paul wants to remind Timothy of the, the context, of the situation in which they are, are living. Look there at verse 1. The Apostle Paul warns his young protege, Timothy, that in the last days he is going to face difficult times. Then look at verse 2. There were going to be days in which people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, excuse me, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, some people interpret the last days to refer to the time just before the second coming of Jesus. However, Paul was warning Timothy about these, these difficult times that he was going to face. And I believe the last days refer to the entire time between Jesus' first and his second coming. And the description of the, the difficult times ahead was, was true not only for, for Timothy, but I think it's an accurate description for us today. There are difficult times ahead for all of us. Paul's description fits us today. But here's the amazing thing about, about Paul's description. Notice here, having just given a discouraging description about the difficult times ahead, he adds in verse 5 there. Look at verse 5. He says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. I think what makes Paul's description so powerful is that the reference of godliness that he, that he refers to cannot refer to, to non-Christians. Paul would not refer to non-Christians as having the appearance of godliness. In fact, he referred to non-Christians and their various religions as ungodly. He did that in, in Romans chapter 1. So if Paul is not referring to non-Christians in our text, he must be referring to Christians. He must be referring to Christians. One commentator, he says, in other words, the problem Paul is describing is not that the world will be evil in the final days before Christ's return, but that the church will be like the world as it is today. The church will be indistinguishable from the world and will be equally corrupt, at least when you look beneath the surface. So what was Timothy to do when facing difficult times ahead? Would the Apostle Paul give Timothy some, some master key that would un unlock the secrets to a highly effective ministry? Yes, that's exactly what Paul does in our passage. Paul gives Timothy a key for reform, for effective ministry. He gives him a key that Timothy had all along, which leads to my second point we see in verse 10 to verse 17. He tells Timothy to believe in God's word. And Paul's key here, Paul's secret ingredient, his key for, for ministry was nothing other than the word of God. He says to Timothy in verse 14, look there in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There it is. There it is. The sacred writings, God's Word, the Scriptures alone contain everything that we need to tell us about faith and life. Everything we need to tell us about faith and life. We must persevere in that conviction that sola scripture is God's major means for the salvation of his people. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter verse 1, verse 23, listen here, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Please underline that in your Bibles if you haven't already. That is such an important verse. Today, unfortunately, there are, there are many churches who are not convinced that Scripture alone is sufficient to save. And think of all the gimmicks that so many churches use to, to draw crowds. Church services are professionally choreo choreographed with, with concert-like music and colorful stage lighting and, and moving testimonies and emotional appeals. And the problem is there, is there is one hour of singing and emotional manipulation, but there's, there's five minutes of preaching from the Scriptures. How do people get saved from five minutes of preaching from the Scriptures? That's not what Peter says. Churches today are not convinced that Scripture alone is sufficient to save. We have churches mixing tradition with Scripture. I'm not just only referring to the Catholic Church. In South Africa, we have the biggest denomination in South Africa called the, the ZCC, the Zionist Christian Church. It was started by Presbyterian missionaries who stood on Scripture alone. And over time, the ZCC has said, well, we don't, we don't believe in Scripture alone anymore. Now we want to believe in our traditions and our, and our ancestor worship. And they've mixed a whole concoction of a, of a different religion that is not from the Bible. All over the world this is happening. People not convinced that Scripture alone is able to save. During the Reformers' days, people were told that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, they had to keep the traditions of the church. They had to do good works. They had to buy indulgences. And they were lied to. They were lied to by the church. Scriptures teach that we are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And just like the Reformers, our confidence needs to be in the Scriptures, which have the power to save, not our perishable human gimmicks. Turn with me quickly. Keep your finger in, in 2 Timothy. But turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Let me convince you from Scripture this morning. Romans 10. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the word of Christ. The word that saves us will also sanctify us. The word that justifies also sanctifies. The scriptures are God's appointed means for the complete salvation of his people. And Paul teaches that we must be completely confident, completely confident in the sufficiency of Scripture. Go back to 2 Timothy. But what is the justification for this conviction? On what basis can I argue for the total sufficiency of Scripture for the salvation of God's people? Well, from our passage, firstly, the fact that God is the source of all Scripture. Look at verse 16 there. Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, the word inspiration literally means breathed out. It's been breathed out. Scripture is breathed out. The basis of, of sola Scripture is Scripture's inspired nature. It is, God has used human people to write the words, but it is His Spirit that has inspired them to write the words. He has breathed out the words into their pens. As Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that cannot be said of church traditions. That cannot be said of church councils or, or church leaders, as important as they they all may be, while Scripture may have many human authors, it has one divine author. And the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us, carried along the biblical authors so that what they said, God Himself said to the very words. And for that reason, Scripture is also inerrant. Inerrancy being a result of inspiration. Inerrancy means that Scripture is without error. It is true in all that it commands, in all that it says. As the Holy Spirit carried along the biblical authors, He ensured that their human words reflected His holy character. So Scripture is truth because God Himself is truth. It is, after all, God's Word. Inerrancy is essential not only because it provides warrant for our assurance, giving us every reason to believe Scripture is trustworthy, but inerrancy also distinguishes Scripture from all the other human authorities, all the other fallible authorities. Scripture alone is infallible. It is inerrant. It is our complete authority. And according to Paul, Scripture is sufficient on four broad areas. And I want to show you those quickly in our passage. First, he tells us the Bible tells us what is right. 
there at verse 16. He says, it is profitable for, for teaching. It is profitable for teaching. In other words, it is profit, profitable to teach us what is right. Scripture is profitable to teach us what is right. And I think this needs to be stressed today. And it needs to be made very clear today. In a day which the question is asked, what is truth? We need to boldly say truth is whatever God says about something. Whatever God says about something, that is truth. And so as we wonder how to do church, how to, how to evangelize, who to, who to marry, how to live, how to raise a family, how to handle money. We don't need to go to Oprah. We don't need to go to the, the local pop gurus all over the world. We go to Scripture. We go to Scripture to find out what God says about these issues. There is nothing necessarily wrong with, with asking others. I'm not saying you can't ask friends or, or parents, but our final authority, our final authority in all matters of faith and practice must be Scripture alone. Second, there in the same verse, the Bible tells us what is not right. There in verse 16, Scripture is profitable for reproof. Reproof. Profitable to show us what is not right. So firstly, Scripture tells us what is right. And then secondly, it tells us what is not right. And sometimes people need to be told no. They need to be told that they are, are wrong and that they, have, and that they have sinned. And they need to be told what is sin. It needs to be defined even in our day and age. They need to be told about what is lies and what is falsehood. And only a biblical conviction regarding Scripture alone will give us the courage to declare what is not right. When Martin Luther was instructed by the, the Roman Catholic Church to recant of his opposition to their to their doctrines, he took some time to consider, and then he replied. And this, is what, this was his reply. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And what a man of conviction. What a man of conviction. We need the same conviction. Thirdly, Scripture tells us what is right. Scripture tells us what is not right. But Scripture, thirdly, tells us how to get right. Look there in our passage. It says it is profitable for correction. Scripture is profitable for correction. And once we have been told where we have gone wrong, we need Scripture to show us how to straighten up, isn't it? We need to apply truth. We must practice theology in the same way that doctors practice medicine. I've said it before, isn't it? Our belief affects our behavior. Our belief affects our behavior. We need to apply truth. Practice theology in the same way that doctors practice medicine. 
If you were a doctor and you just stored up the knowledge of medicine in your mind and never applied your knowledge to help the people that came to you for help, you would be a terrible doctor. That would be a malpractice, wouldn't it? We need to take the information and the knowledge we learn from the Scriptures and we need to apply it. You should expect this of your elders. You should expect this of your church leaders. We need to come alongside people. We need to come alongside people that we are discipling and assist them and help them in getting right. Fourth, Scripture shows us how to stay right. Again, in our passage, how to stay right. It is profitable for instruction in righteousness, the Scripture says. Once we have made right, the Bible shows us how to persevere, how we are to mature, and how we are to, to grow. And we need a steady diet of God's Word. Even the Reformers were known for saying that the church, having reformed, must always be reforming. We've never completely arrived, folks. No matter what level of, of education or even Christian training or Bible training we've had, the church having reformed must always be reforming. We never reach a point where we are reformed with no further need. And the result of such conviction concerning Scripture will be a person, a believer, a disciple who is right and hence who is equipped to be an effective disciple maker in fulfilling our Lord's great commission. Are we effective disciple makers? Thirdly, my last point, in chapter 4, from verse 1 to 8, Paul tells us, Paul tells Timothy to preach and teach the Word of God. The strategy that Paul gives Timothy in chapter 4 is, is quite simple. Preach the Word. He says, if Scripture is, all, is as sufficient as verse 16 and verse 17 said, says it is, then what else could you possibly proclaim that can accomplish what it was designed to accomplish. Nothing. We preach and we, we teach the Word as heralds. We don't preach our experience. We don't teach ourselves. We don't talk about our spiritual impressions. We don't, we don't proclaim our traditions. We preach the Word as God has given it to us. And we do it reverently. And we do it urgently. And we do it repeatedly. And God grows His church through His Word. Are we willing to stand on Scripture alone? What are we saying to the next generation about our conviction of Scripture? What are we saying to our children? Do they see us standing on Scripture alone? What do we say to the next generation about God? You know, I don't have to convince you too much that we are in dangerous times, just like Paul told Timothy. We are in this godless last days. Our culture is declining. You know, 20 years ago, governments around the world refused to recognize same-sex marriages. But today, in most Western cultures and Western countries, same-sex marriages are, are common law of the land. And today, governments are debating issues of, of gender. 
and trying to implement laws catering for the, the LGBTQ communities. We are in a godless time. And if we want to impact the culture, how do we do so? If we want to make a difference, if we want to be light in a dark place, if we want to be the salt on the earth, how do we do so? Do we set up political action committees? Do we promote social justice teams? What do we do to see culture transformed? Well, I'm arguing that we impact our culture by teaching and, and the practice of the Word of God alone. Why? Because God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient for cultural transformation. God's Word is sufficient for spiritual transformation. God's Word is sufficient to save the lost. I found a great illustration here that I'm going to end with, a story from James M Montgomery Boyce of a striking example of this. He says, in, in 1535, the, the Council of 200, which governed the city of Geneva, Switzerland, decided to break with Catholicism and align with the Protestant Reformation. They had very little idea what that meant. And up to this point, the city had been notorious for its, its riots, for gambling, for indecent dancing, for drunkenness, for adultery, and other vices. And the citizens of Geneva would literally run around the streets naked, singing indecent songs and blaspheming God. And they expected this state of affairs to continue after they had become Protestant, uh, sorry, Sorry, they expected this state of affairs to con not to continue after they had become Protestants. So they passed regulation after regulation designed to restrain vice and remedy the situation. They thought becoming Protestant would solve the problem, but that did not do any good either. Genuine moral change never comes from the top down by law, but from the bottom up through a transformed people. And Geneva's morals continued to decline. But the council did one thing right. They invited John Calvin to become Geneva's chief pastor and preacher. And he arrived in August of 1536, a year after the change. He was ignored at first, even by the council. He was not even paid for the first year. And besides, his first preaching proved so unpopular that he was dismissed in early 1538. And he went to Strasbourg, where he was very happy. He had no desire to go back to Geneva. Yet, when the situation in Geneva continued to deteriorate, public opinion turned to him again, and driven by a sense of duty, Calvin returned. It was September the 13th, 1541. Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. He had no strategy but to preach God's Word. And from the very first, his emphasis had been on Bible teaching. And he returned to it now, picking up precisely where he had left off three and a half years earlier. Calvin preached from the Bible every day. And under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's word and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox called it later, 
a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, to England and the new world. And this change made other changes possible. And here's one historian, he, he wrote, he says, Cleanliness was practically unknown in towns of his generation, and epidemics were common and numerous. He moved the council to make permanent regulations for establishing sanitary conditions and supervision of markets. Beggars were prohibited from the streets, but a hospital and a poorhouse were provided and well conducted. Calvin labored zealously for the education of all classes and established the famous academy, which whose influence reached all parts of Europe, even to the British Isles. And he urged the council to introduce the cloth and silk industry, which laid the foundation for the temporal wealth of Geneva. And this industry proved especially successful because Calvin, through the gospel, created within the individual the love of work, the love of honesty, the love of thrift and cooperation. And he taught that capital was not an evil thing, but the blessed result of honest labor and that it could be used for the welfare of m mankind. And countries under the influence of John Calvin were invariably connected with a growing industry and wealth. It is not, he says, it is not mere coincidence that religious and political liberty arose in those countries where the teaching of the word of God had penetrated most deeply. There probably has never been a clearer example of extensive moral and social reform than the transformation of Geneva under the ministry of John Calvin. And it was accomplished almost entirely by the preaching of God's Word. John Calvin understood what Paul was saying to Timothy. What we just read. Paul exhorted Timothy to continue in the path of ministry because from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, he says in verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why is the Word of God able to do that? God's Word is able to do that because, look at verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The Scripture is the very Word of God. And because it is, it carries within it the authority and the power of God. The Word of God is sufficient. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me finish with one passage of scripture. I think it's here on the slide. Psalm 19 verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. That is talking all about Scripture there, folks. That is all about Scripture. Look at the next verse. More to be desired are the Scriptures than gold. More to be desired are the Scriptures than even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey 
and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The word of God is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true, it is righteous, it is desired, it is sweeter, and it is rewarding. Let us be people of the word. Let us be people of the book. Let us believe that God's word is indeed sufficient to accomplish what God says it will accomplish. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Please take it and apply it to our hearts for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.